Hi, I'm Nicole. And I'm Desiree. We are both mothers who run a support group for perinatal loss. Through our group, we have met many wonderful families and have had the honor of hearing about and sometimes meeting their beautiful babies. We notice that families feel relief when they can share openly and feel seen when they meet others who are telling similar stories. So we created this podcast as a space for families to share the stories of their babies. We want to honor and remember these children. We want to help you navigate your life after loss. And most importantly, we want each story to give you hope. So please join us as we share these stories of grief and love. Welcome to the Blindsided Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Blindsided Podcast. We're your hosts, Nicole and Desiree. Our guest today is Erin Epstein. I met Erin through a nonprofit I volunteer with. She also volunteers with a nonprofit and runs a support group there. Hi, it's Desiree. Hi, it's Erin. So Erin, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? I am Erin. Um, I live in Egg Harbor Township, New Jersey, so I'm close to the shore points. I work as a social worker and currently work with people with advancing health conditions around advanced care planning. And, you know, outside of my professional job, I've done a lot of work with grief and loss and infertility has definitely been something that's, I don't want to call it a passion because I didn't necessarily want it to become that, but just, you know, being able to help other people through the process of going through treatment and unfortunately losses that sometimes come along the way while, you know, going through treatment. So before we start, I was going to say that like, it's not that you want to call it a passion, but it just reminds me because I, when I tell people about the support group or about the support that's available, I always say like, it's so much fun. It's so weird to say. How can you have fun, but then talk about pregnancy loss and infant loss and people losing their babies? But I feel like it's the projection around it. I don't even know how to explain it. Like you make it what it is, but I love doing it and I love going in the hospital and I hate every time that I go to the hospital. But in the same sense, I love doing it. I guess it's um, kind of like an advocacy thing. And we like to advocate because I've never experienced this, but you have. And it's I think that's where you find the joy is like in advocating for families to get maybe what you didn't have. And you can tell me if I'm wrong. No, I don't think you're wrong at all. And and for me, the way that I've looked at it is as cliche as it sounds, we don't get to choose the cards that were dealt. But I think for me personally, the best thing that I could do with those cards, because I have to do something to keep their memory alive and not have all of this, you know, Mm -hmm. be in vain is just to be able to help other people. You know, it does sound cliche, but that's just what has been the most healing for me is feeling like I can help, you know, women on their journey going through infertility treatment, you know, whether that's you know, making recommendations of things that, you know, were helpful for me, just being a support going through that process, trying to give other people hope that, you know, even through loss, it is still possible to have a family, being that voice for other people that I've needed at times when I felt like, you know, my dreams of having living children would never happen. I think that's what has given me the drive. And quite honestly, I think that's a huge part of why my rainbow baby is here today. Because in trying to give hope to other people, I was also giving that to myself. Yes, you're very introspective. Yeah, I always try to think of it too, as like, I would be parenting my daughter if she was here. And I'm like parenting her in this way by helping other people. This is time I would have dedicated to her. So now I can use that time to help other people that are going through the same thing. Absolutely. So can you tell us about your pregnancy journey starting wherever you feel most comfortable? Yeah, so it was quite a journey. I had started about six years ago, starting to navigate the process of infertility treatment. You know, I was in a same-sex marriage, so I knew to some degree I would need 
infertility treatment. However, I also felt, you know, there were things that I was struggling with that would make it hard to conceive whether I was in a same-sex relationship or not. And unfortunately, at the beginning of my journey, I was only 30, so I didn't really feel like I was taken extremely seriously, and I had to jump through a lot of hoops to finally get the testing I needed, get a diagnosis, like really find out what was going on. And unfortunately, prior to knowing exactly, you know, what my specific issues were, I did have to, you know, pay a lot of money out of pocket for an egg retrieval and a transfer that ended up not working. After that, I put my foot down and kind of sought out another doctor and said, I I really need to know what is going on because without, you know, any kind of diagnosis, this is all going to be out of pocket and I'm not going to be able to afford this. And it it just kind of felt a little discriminatory because I couldn't prove because I was in a same-sex relationship that I had been trying for X amount of months or years or what have you. But deep down, I knew that something wasn't right for me. And I didn't want to keep going down that road of having transfer after transfer without having a doctor who is actually invested in in finding out if indeed there was something wrong. So I did end up um, going through a laparoscopy and finding out that I had severe endometriosis and also PCOS, you know, both conditions that can and do impact infertility. And once I found that information, out, lo and behold, the insurance company was willing to pay for transfers moving forward. I continued on the pathway of trying to get pregnant. I had a transfer that was canceled because my body wasn't, you know, doing what it needed to do. And then finally, um, eventually came the transfer with Madeline and Dylan. I was encouraged also to transfer to embryos, which you know, that's, that's a debatable thing in itself, but you know, especially at the age that I was, that's a whole conversation for another day, but I did the transfer. I did get pregnant with twins. I was ecstatic because, you know, going through all of that and having it not work, you know, the first time, second time, um, just to learn that you're expecting two babies. I thought, you know, this is amazing. This is the best scenario that could possibly happen. Of course, in the beginning of the pregnancy, I was terrified. I had family members who had had miscarriages. And I think that was the biggest thing that was in my head at that point was, you know, I hope that I, I don't lose one of them. You hear different things about twins. But so can we just go back really quickly to diagnosis of the polycyst, the PCOS and the diagnosis of the endometriosis? Did you have symptoms of that that retrospectively you didn't really notice or no? So this is a little bit complicated because the PCOS diagnosis came later on. So basically with the endometriosis, I had horrible periods my whole life, like terrible. So I was constantly like in a lot of pain. I had bowel issues things that are classic symptoms of endometriosis. But in order to really detect this, you can't just do an ultrasound and find endometriosis. You know, there has to be something more diagnostic. So I really, really pushed for the laparoscopy, um, which isn't something that they just freely do for women. Exactly. It's not like you're just going to go to your doctor's office and they're going to do a little ultrasound. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes for people, they can do a Mm -hmm. hysteroscopy and have general idea, but they hadn't even done that for me. They really just looked at me and my age and said, oh, you'll be fine. You'll get pregnant. Like it was almost as if they didn't hear me and what I was expressing. It's just, I was 30 years old. I was 
a lesbian, essentially, so I would need treatment no matter what. And I felt very brushed off, but I knew deep down that it wasn't normal, the amount of pain that you know I would suffer from. And I also knew that that could impact the chances of getting pregnant. And then in terms of the PCOS, I personally feel that that spoke for itself. When I had an egg retrieval, um, one of the misconceptions that some people have and even I had, was that if they are able to retrieve a large amount of eggs, that that's a great thing. It's actually not always a great thing. And for me, they did retrieve a very large number. But now looking back and talking with other doctors, that was very indicative that I had PCOS that was never treated. And then it left me in a position where I was more open to having some embryos that were not considered genetically normal. Did you have them tested? I did not. I didn't either. So we ha- that's very similar. I didn't. And that I'll touch on all of that as well. So there's, sure. it's, it's difficult because Madeline did have Down syndrome. So if I had I had them tested, that. I never would have had her. However, somebody my age that had retrieved as many as I did, I think to avoid potential miscarriages or transfers that didn't work, not to avoid a child having Down syndrome because that didn't matter to me, but I think that it, it probably would have been in my best interest if somebody had advised me properly and explained to me that because of the amount that there could have been more risk And nobody had that conversation. I just felt that everything that was done was done very, very poorly. And it wasn't until later on that I found out so much more information that I didn't know. And because of this, for a long time, I actually questioned, like, were the remaining embryos, quote unquote, genetically normal? You know, was there going to be, you know, a healthy child, you know, that would come from this batch of embryos that was left? Because the first transfer that Tori had, which was the first pregnancy essentially since Madeline and Dylan ended in miscarriage as well. So I just felt like I was very poorly advised and I just wasn't given all of the information. Do you think that was a because of the practice that you were at or do you think that was just because of your relationship or your age? Like why do you think that was? So I definitely think it was age related. I think that I got very, very brushed off because I was, you know, young. I may have started when I was 29, 29, 30, you know, somewhere in that range. You know, the particular doctor just, he just shrugged me off. Oh, you're young, you're healthy, you'll be fine. You'll get pregnant. Everything will be fine. And then there was the factor of, you know, being in a same-sex relationship, which I think hindered the care that I received. They didn't take those extra steps to see if there was anything actually wrong. It felt to me like you need to go through infertility treatment because there's no man in the picture. So I felt like there was that. And I do feel like it was the particular practice. Um, I debated if I was going to share this information um, because this is something that actually I've never said out loud in this kind of a setting. And a lot of people don't know. One of the things that I think was the most difficult and is still the most difficult looking back from me is because I didn't have any insurance coverage because essentially I was a lesbian. So I could not, you know, again, I couldn't prove at that point that I had any infertility condition because they didn't go through the steps of, you know, doing all of the testing and yada, yada, yada. The things that I now know that other doctors do prior to a person having an egg retrieval or a transfer. I was actually encouraged to go through a retrieval cycle where essentially I would donate 
all of those eggs that were retrieved in order to fund my own treatment. So I've never really said this, but I did do it because I felt like I was backed up against a wall. I felt I had no choice. And we, you know, I'm sure most people know that to go through just the process of one retrieval and one transfer alone is upwards of $10,000. And at the time I didn't have it. So essentially what that means for me is that I probably have living children somewhere in this world that I will never know. That was not a decision Mm -hmm. that I wanted to make, but I felt like I had no choice. You have a choice. And and the thing that was the hardest was that question in your mind of, what if this doesn't work out for me? And then I got pregnant with twins and I lost both of them. I didn't know that. I wish that you felt more comfortable to share that more openly because that's pretty effed up. That blows my mind. Wow. I think what hurts the most about it is, you know, that is such a major decision for any woman to make and any woman making it, regardless of the reason, needs to be educated. She needs to really understand the decision that she's making and the impacts that that could have later in life. Because even if somebody was doing it, let's say some women I've heard have done it like to help with college, let's say. What happens one day down the road when that same woman is married and she's trying to have a baby and she's having miscarriage after miscarriage and she's thinking back to when she went through that process also knowing that maybe somewhere in the world she also has living children it's a very tormenting thought and although i think it's a beautiful thing and i know people who have become parents that way it's wonderful but it's wonderful when the woman isn't doing it feeling as if her back is against a wall because the doctors that she's seeing did not go through the process of going through all of the testing to rule out endometriosis, PCOS, low ovarian reserve. And they didn't do any of that for me. And what they did was they hung this in front of my face. Well, if you do this, you get this. But my babies ended up dying. And then I had to live with the fact that there was the possibility that I had children that it were, that are, you know, around the same age that they are and took essentially five, six years to have my rainbow baby. So all of those years after Madeline and Dylan passing away and having to carry that with me, knowing that somewhere I may have living children that has not been easy to cope with at all. But there was a lot of shame for me around making that decision. And, you know, people that did know, and very few people knew, you know, a couple family members and my wife knows, you know, they said that was a wonderful thing you did. You know, somebody out there wouldn't be able to have their child without that decision. And, and I agree, you know, it is a wonderful thing. But for me, just I feel the emotional damage that it did for me after losing my children. I have a lot of sadness around it. And the fact that I just I wasn't treated the way that I should have been and I wasn't given fair options. It's pretty fucked up that they made you feel that way and made you do that. I'm sure Nicole has her own thoughts, but my personal thoughts, it's pretty fucked up. A, B, I feel the same way you do. I feel like it's a beautiful thing if you're choosing to do it. I, I can bet you 99.9% of people would make the same exact choice. Absolutely. Yes. And I mean, I think a part of me does want to share this because I never want anyone else to be in that position. Um, and it is a huge part of this story because that was the one thing that always lingered in my head. Like if this ends up working out for me, then, you know, I'll be so happy I made this choice and then, you know, I get to have a child and somebody else gets to have a child and all is well. But how could I have ever known 
what was going to happen to me and that I was going to have to live with that on top of it. And besides that, it's just the fact that any person, any woman that's going into an infertility center saying, I need help. I don't care if you're straight, gay, trans, every woman needs to be treated with the same dignity, respect, and the same level of care. And I know that that's something that, you know, a lot of people who are in the infertility world right now, they're really pushing for different things to be changed and for LGBT people to have more access to treatment. And those are things that need to happen because nobody should be backed into a corner. If you willingly choose that you want to give that gift to somebody and you want to go through that process, it's beautiful. And again, you know, I have friends that that's how they have their children. But for me, I was just a young person that wanted help that they didn't do what they should have done for me. Yeah. Having to deal with that thought of I have children out there somewhere that I will never know. And the children I had are buried in the ground. I can't tell you what that did to me and what it has done to me. Yeah, that's just like you said, just like a tormenting thought. I can't even imagine. Oh my. Did you continue to use that clinic after you had your losses with your twin? No, I did not. Because basically they have this program. And again, I mean, it can be wonderful for some people, but maybe somebody like, I don't know, just I'm not going to say who it should be because that's not for me to say, but I not a 30-year-old female coming in for the first time without wow. any like diagnostic testing and I'm going to just mm-hmm. throw this at her as the best option for her like yeah. especially because the biggest smack in the face was after I had the hysteroscopy and it came or not the hysteroscopy the laparoscopy and it came back the way it did insurance covered everything mm-hmm. after that when did you end up having the hysteroscopy the laparoscopy I had laparoscopy, I'm sorry in I want to say that was May and I had gone through that retrieval cycle in the previous August. So I had started, basically I had been with them about a year. Okay. Okay. August, I had the retrieval cycle that was not for me. Eggs would not be for me. They would go to the other person. And then they did my retrieval several months later. And then after that transfer didn't work is when I said, no, I need to have the laparoscopy. Like I can't keep doing this because the money that came from the donation was already used. It was gone. So there wasn't, you know, anything left. I had to come up with it out of pocket and I just couldn't keep doing transfer after transfer. So it wasn't even that long of a period of time. And I think that's what gets me the most is like, it wasn't even a year before I found out what was really wrong after like demanding testing. And like, I could have avoided that. And I feel bad saying it because I know that essentially that means somebody else's child probably wouldn't be here today. But again, I just wish I had been properly educated. Yeah, absolutely. So after you had the laparoscopy, you had the transfer with the twins and they did a transfer of two embryos for that? Yeah. So they started to prep me for one transfer before that and it ended up not working out and we had to transfer or we had to cancel the transfer cycle. And then came the transfer with the twins and both of them took. So everything was good. Pregnancy was going well. And then I ended up having the NIPT test because I was excited. I wanted to know the genders. Like there was no part of me in inside of my head that thought that I was going to learn anything from that test except for potential genders of the baby. For me, I just opted to do it. Okay. And so I got the test done, didn't think anything of it. I get a phone call 
one night and it's the genetic counselor at this point i don't know if that's just the person who calls to give these results like this is the first time i've ever gone through this and her voice just sounds completely somber and like i think instantly i knew something was wrong and then she said trisomy 21 so i obviously you know already knew what that was and i needed like a second for my brain to just kind of comprehend this but i knew instinctively i knew what she was going to say after that and i stopped her before she could even even say the words because i didn't even want it to get out of her mouth i knew essentially she was going to tell me what my options were and i cut her off and i told her there's no options like i just want to come in and get you know, resources and education so I can best take care of whichever baby, you know, has Down syndrome. And that's what I did. I just started gathering as much information as I possibly could. Um, I learned about different programs that, you know, CHOP had. And from there, um, I didn't know which baby. We just knew it was one of them. Just wanted to educate myself. That test. So it basically says that one of them or just says that there's a potential for one of them to have it. So how it was explained to me was that it was one of them, especially because they were fraternal. So if they were identical twins and they were the same gender, more than likely that would probably mean they both had it. But how it was explained to me was that they believed that it was just one of them and it was like a 90 something probability. So of course, there's that little tiny outlier that maybe not but like it was more than likely that, you know, one of them definitely did. And looking back on that phone call, I think something that, you know, always stands out to me and it's strange, but it kind of like makes me laugh a little bit is I actually had to the thing that I wanted to know from that test was their genders. I just wanted to know what they were so badly and she didn't even tell me. She, um, oh my God. I actually had to ask her at the end of the call, well, what are they? And so then she told me that it, one of them was a boy. If one of them was a boy, they wouldn't be able to, that would either mean that they were both boys or that it was a boy and a girl, but they couldn't detect both. Right. But it was just like so upsetting to me the way that conversation went as well and having to basically interject to tell this person like, there aren't options. I mean, I know that they have to tell people, but it was just so somber. It wasn't congratulations that we have so many resources and so many things that are available and your child will live a happy and healthy and productive life. It was just so somber and it just shouldn't have been that way. But from that point, I gathered resources. I, you know, had to come to terms with all of this information. I mean, it wasn't easy. It's not something that you want to have happen, but I wanted my babies. Regardless of what they did or didn't have, it didn't matter to me. I just wanted to be prepared as a young mother and make sure that, you know, I would have all the tools to, you know, care for both of them. So, you know, then I proceeded as normal. A couple weeks later, I did find out that the other baby was a girl. I never knew which one had Down syndrome, which one didn't. So later on, you know, I just continued. These were my babies and, and that was that. So this was around 12 weeks when this happened. I went into an MFM appointment at 16 weeks pregnant and the doctor that I would typically see wasn't there that day. And what was so strange about this also, this always stands out to me because I had never heard of PROM in my entire life. And a coworker of mine's wife had just had PROM a couple weeks 
prior. And I didn't understand any of it except for the fact that their baby Mm -hmm. was potentially in danger. Thank God, you know, for them, everything ended up working out and their daughter is now healthy and thriving. But it was a very scary situation. And I remember thinking like, how horrible, how awful. I've never heard of something like this. So then I go into this appointment at 16 weeks pregnant. The doctor that I typically see isn't there. And they had somebody that was coming from um, the particular hospital I don't know how to explain this, but the hospital that oversees this doctor's office, I'll just put it that way. Um, And she was doing a scan and, you know, kind of stopped at some point during this scan. And the way that this was explained, again, another situation where the explanation of everything, it just wasn't done in the way it should have been. And she basically told me that something was wrong. Um, I, I don't. I, I don't even remember exactly how she went about it. Besides to say that for whatever what, what for whatever was wrong, there was a clinical trial at this hospital, and I could maybe partake in this clinical trial to help save the babies. So at this point, I'm irate. She's not explaining this right. yeah. properly, and I thought you're lying. You, you are just some representative from this hospital and you just want me to do this clinical trial. Like nothing's wrong with my babies. Like, what are you talking about? Like, I don't know you. I don't know what you're saying to me. And I, and I literally thought in my mind, this woman just wants me to do a clinical trial. So I ended up coming back. I want to say like the next day or like two days later to see like the doctor that I would typically see there And then he obviously explained like what was actually happening and that it appeared as if the membranes were protruding and that essentially I was probably going to lose both of these babies, that my, my water was most likely going to break. And, you know, he asked me if I wanted to terminate the pregnancy, said, you're young, you'll have more children. I wanted nothing to do with any of that. Um, I had already, from the information that I had gathered from the interaction with this woman, I had done a little bit of research and I asked him about cerclages and if there was anything that they could do. But at at the point that it was at, he felt that the infection risk was too high. I was hysterical. So he agreed to do a pessary, which is basically a plug to try and plug the uterus. But I think he knew. I mean, he told me there was a 50-50 shot. I think he knew there wasn't. I think he did it just to pacify me because I was absolutely hysterical. After that, he sent me home on bed rest let me know what to look out for. This was right before Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving week is when everything happened. And I was about 18 weeks at that point, And my water broke on my bedroom floor. And I went to the hospital. And I was rationalizing the whole way there because I knew that it was only one of the babies. I knew it wasn't both of them. I was already confiscating this plan in my head that, okay, one of them is going to have to be delivered. Like there's nothing that anybody can do to change that. But why does the other one have to be delivered? Like that doesn't need to happen. And so I got to the hospital and obviously they were, you know, able to confirm that it was Dylan and his water had broke. MFM came, the doctor, and he could see that he was already kind of starting to come through. There was 
nothing that they were going to be able to do. But Madeline was up further than he was. And again, I just pleaded and asked MFM if there was like anything that they could do. Like I just couldn't, you couldn't make me understand why they both needed to be delivered. And now in a lot of situations, they probably both would have been. It just so happens that this particular doctor that I was seeing had done a lot of research studies on twin pregnancies when there's a demise of one of the twins or a situation like mine with P-prom that had only impacted one of the sacs. And he had come up with some kind of procedure called an endoloop. To this day, I can't explain to you what they did, how they did it. All I know is that I begged. And he explained to the hospital staff what they would need to do in case he was not there at that point, which he wasn't, what basically they would need to do after Dylan was delivered to try and keep her in. So I spent two days in labor with him, which like blew my mind. Again, it was a situation where nobody told me what to be prepared for. Like I thought that because of the gestational age at 18 weeks that like, I was afraid that I was just going to go to the bathroom and he was just going to come out. I was terrified and there really was not a lot of guidance. Like I was so thankful for the nurses at the hospital, but OBGYNs that I had, I saw at that point, even with them, I just don't feel like there was a lot of tact. There was a lot of compassion and there wasn't a lot of explanation for anything. Um, but basically, you know, this went on for, for two days. It reached a point where one of the nurses was like urging me to get up and start walking. What I didn't realize at the time was that the more time that was going by, the infection risks were getting higher. So that meant that the risks from Madeline were higher, but I wasn't comprehending all of this. So after a certain period of time, she really wanted things to get going because they couldn't give me any pain medication. And they knew that the longer that this took, the higher the risks were. So finally, 30 something hours later, they, they had basically said, when it's time, you'll feel this one big contraction. And I, my family, like too much of my family probably came and it was great that they wanted to support me, but it was also a lot. It was a lot that was going on for me, but I was talking to like two of my family members and I felt it. Like I felt that big contraction and all I remember saying was, no, I didn't want it to happen. Right. I wasn't ready for it, but it needed to happen. So I had several family members that were actually in the room when I had him and- I mean, I remember every single detail. There's nothing that I don't remember. They told me to push and I remember being so angry and one of the nurses was like holding my leg and told me to push. And I'm thinking, push what? Like, what are you talking about? I know he's going to be so small. What do you want me to push out? I didn't even understand. And I was so mad. And I'm pushing and I hear my mom, my grandmother, everybody crying. And then, you know, his shoulder got stuck. So it took a little bit longer to get him out. And then I'll never forget because I don't think any of us ever do. But when he was born, there was no cry. And she said, he's not alive because I had told the doctor that if for any reason at all, he was breathing, which I think they knew that he wouldn't be because the cord had prolapsed, but they didn't want to tell me that. I mean, and I can understand why now I just wanted to hold him if he was still breathing. But the words that I heard was he's not alive. And then I remember I shut my eyes because then I was afraid to see him. I didn't know what he was going to look like and I was scared. And then I opened my eyes and then he was the most beautiful thing that I ever saw. To this day, I still feel that way. And I kept him for 
a very long time. And again, they didn't really educate me on what to prepare for or the changes that would happen to him. But I kept him for, I would say at least, if not more than 24 hours. I wasn't even able to sleep. Like my best friend had to come and sit in a chair next to my bed and like watch him because I would wake up in a panic. Where's my baby? And then like, as soon as I would wake up, I would ask someone to like bring him to me. And it was just incredible to me. And it still is like this bond that I had with him, even though he wasn't alive, but I just felt so connected to him. And this was my first child. And he always will be. That has never changed um, in all of this time. And something that is so crazy, but I'll tell anybody, is when they took him away from me, that was the worst part of any of the whole entire thing that I went through. Even Madeline's passing, because I had felt a little bit more prepared for that than I was prepared to lose him at that point in the pregnancy. But when they took him away, I think the only thing that kept me breathing, it was her. And something that I think is crazy, looking back, I, it all comes together. You know, everything with them now comes together for me, but she started kicking right after that. Like Aww. the next day, and I yeah. mean kicking. We're not talking like little tiny baby kicks that you would typically feel with a first pregnancy. Like right. she started going wild after that. And I know, I know it was like to keep me alive because then I had to fight for her because they were able to do the end of the loop after he was born. My cervix closed back up as if there had never been two babies. It was oh actually gosh, like miraculous. They were stunned. Yes. I had people tell me after the fact that they were like sure that I was going to lose wow. her right afterwards. And I didn't. The only thing was that they had to leave his placenta. They couldn't deliver it mm -hmm. because then she would have had to have been delivered. So I was at an extremely high risk of infection. So that's why everybody thought that there was no way. I was going to make it as far as I made it. But the pregnancy continued. I still stayed on on bed rest. Um, did you go home or did you stay Yeah, no, oh. they sent me home. Wow. They wow. sent me home. I was on bed rest. I was not able to go to his funeral, which was like devastating for me. But doctors did not advise that in any capacity. So my friend sat with me and my family FaceTimed me at the funeral. I... After he had passed away, they thought at one point that maybe he had been the baby who had Down syndrome and that had yeah. impacted um, his placenta because sometimes in some rare cases, the placenta can be a little bit weaker if the baby has Down syndrome. Not in all cases, but in some. But I got the results back two weeks later and found out that he did not have Down syndrome. So then essentially I knew that it was Madeline. And then I just did my best to just kind of continue on the pathway that I was on like it was very difficult because although in a sense I was connected to resources I was also encouraged not to utilize those resources because I was still pregnant so a they don't want you to trigger anybody else because you're still pregnant and other people are you know struggling with their losses and then you know obviously they wanted me to you know be strong for Madeline and then there wasn't you know as much zoom types of things at that point in time six years ago 
So it, it just kind of left me in the space of being alone, dealing with this. I didn't know anybody. And I mean, I still don't really know anybody who had an experience quite like this one. And I just kind of had to deal with it. It just kind of was what it was. So I kept pushing forward, just willing this baby to live every day, just praying to get another step forward in my spare time. I'm still researching, you know, programs and, you know, things that I'll need for her when she's born. And um, my appointments were going great. The doctor was thrilled. It hurt me though, because when it was referenced that it was almost as if I had only ever been pregnant with one baby, like it was just so painful because I wasn't. There were twins. No. How often were you going for testing at this point? Because I mean, you're extremely high risk. Were you at the hospital every day? So I ended up in the hospital many times, actually, in various hospitals, because the problem with the placenta was that there was a lot of bleeding, there was a lot of breakdown, I never knew what was normal, what wasn't normal. And it was just a constant. It was just I just one week, I would end up in the hospital, and the next week, I'd be home, like it was just a constant back and forth. But I did end up making it to 27 weeks. And the funny part about it was that the appointment that I had right before everything happened, he was just so happy with the progress. And he actually, the doctor said to me, he thought I was going to make it all the way. It's hard to explain like all of this because there's more things that I'm going to touch on. But basically what ended up happening was with the fear was all along, but thank God it happened when it did, the placenta became infected. So I ended up getting chorioamnionitis. So that meant that Madeline had to be delivered right away. But prior to that, I had gone to the hospital the night before and told them that I was having a lot of pain. I didn't feel right. Totally brushed me off. They sent me home. The next day, I was in bed writhing in pain and I'm calling the OB and I'm trying to explain what's going on. And she's trying to say that maybe I have a UTI. Like looking back, the whole situation was insane because MFM was very clear with them about what had happened, what to look for. Understandably, this was a unique situation, but with somebody in the situation that I was in, you would think that you wouldn't take any chances. But I'm literally telling her, like, I don't feel right. I have terrible pain in my back. Something's not right. Something's not right. And she's encouraging me not to go to the hospital. So by eight o'clock that night, I call my mom and I'm explaining to her what I'm feeling. And she's like, no, she's like, you're in back labor. Like you need to go to the hospital. I go back to this hospital and the contractions were not showing on the monitor. So they're trying to pull the same thing saying, oh, we don't think you're in labor, this, that, and the other thing. But on top of it and not trying to give too much information, but I was bleeding and it wasn't normal bleeding. It was very clear that there was an infection. And at this point, I could just feel that my life and this baby's life was in danger and they were not listening to me. And I told them like, you need to call my MFM doctor now. And finally, they did admit me because I think at that point, like they knew I was serious. I'm not leaving. You need to call them. And he came in, well, actually prior to that, there was some nurse when I was admitted. And at this point, I'm so out of it because I'm in so much pain. I'm having back contractions, like I'm in agony. And I hear this nurse, I couldn't even really like, couldn't even see her face. But she said, I think you might be in labor. And I'm like, thank you, God, somebody finally believes me. 
And I thought she was an angel. And now my MFM doctor comes in the next morning. He does a quick examination and says, you need an emergency C-section. And I'm like, when? Like, I I don't even, I'm so out of it. Like now. So they quickly prep me. I had to be put to sleep. I remember just hyperventilating. I didn't even have time to think about what was going to happen to me. I just wanted to make sure she was going to be okay. Had they sent me home again, we both could have died. I had to be, well, we both actually had to be cleared for sepsis after she was born. That was the first thing I wanted to know, obviously, when I woke up is, is she okay? And they showed me a video of her crying, came out screaming. Oh my and gosh. all on her own. And it was just incredible. Good for you for sticking up for yourself and advocating for yourself because a lot of people wouldn't have felt strong enough to do that. And you did. And then you were admitted to the hospital and you knew you needed to be. You listened to your body. Yeah. Thank God. Yeah. I just knew it wasn't normal. But yeah, after that, she was doing fantastic. The doctors would just tell me that for the fact that she was you know, so premature. And also the fact that she had Down syndrome, she was exceeding their expectations. Everybody was so happy. I mean, just for the fact that she came out breathing on her own, she needed limited breathing supports at birth. Um, The first two months, she just did so well. And I spent as much time as I possibly could. I think the whole, the whole NICU, they must've thought I was nuts because I would be there all day. And then I would try to leave for a little bit. And then I'd come back half the night. I was like the only parent that was like still sitting in there at two o'clock in the morning, just as much time as I possibly could. And then it wasn't until she literally hit two months old. That's when like the decline started to happen. And it just made no sense because I, I mean, I knew I had spent so much time researching different things that can happen, not only with a premature baby, but with a baby that does have Down syndrome. But in terms of like her heart, she didn't have any major defects. There was nothing that was presenting that was extremely worrisome. She had had echocardiograms and the nursing staff just kept telling me, well, the the NICU is a roller coaster. And, you know, in a sense, I almost felt like some of what was happening was kind of just being brushed off. It just didn't seem to make any sense to me that she could come out breathing on her own at two pounds and gain weight and get bigger. And suddenly she's going backwards. One day I walked in and she had, at this point, she had been transferred into like one of the little bassinets that they have in there. So I had more like access to her than I had had when she was in the incubator and she was blue. And I grabbed her And it was like right before the monitors went off and I like grabbed her and like held her up and the nurses came in. And at this point I'm demanding again, like, no, like she needs another echocardiogram. Like something's not right. Something's not right. She was back up on all her breathing support. You could see in her chest. I still have the videos and it kills me because it makes me feel responsible, even though it it wasn't my job to notice these things and do something about it. It was the hospital staff, but I have the videos and her, it looks like her heart is pounding out of her chest. And so whatever, you know, I have to go back and forth with them. They're going to bring cardio in again. I remember that. So it was literally like when she turned two months old and I called my mom the one night and said, you need to like not go to work. You need to come to the hospital tomorrow. Like I know something's not right because my mom lived an hour away. 
but she came and nurses like they knew I was exhausted at this point trying to like figure this out on my own. And they like encouraged me to after the echocardiogram was done because I wasn't going to get results back right away. So I thought to go home, get some rest. You need to rest yourself to be able to be there for her, yada, yada, yada. And my grandmother and my mom were at the hospital with me. I finally agreed to leave to go home and rest for a little bit. I didn't make it out of the front doors before they called me on my cell phone and told me I needed to come back to her room. And when I went back, I knew something was wrong and I picked her up and I was holding her and one of the NICU nurses came in and I will never forget, she got down on her knees in front of me while I'm sitting in the chair holding her. And she told me, Madeline has severe pulmonary hypertension and she needs to be transferred. And I said to her, is she going to die? And she said, I don't know. And this wasn't even like the worst that it got. All I knew at this point was that she needed so much more respiratory support. But obviously, the echocardiogram showed more than what I knew. But then they had to come by ambulance, take her to the other hospital. I was allowed to sit in the front. I wasn't allowed to sit with her. Madeline was a very quiet baby. She never cried. She was very, I don't even know how to explain like the personality that she had, but she was very inquisitive. When she heard noises, she would slowly turn her whole head. She was like a creep, turn her whole head to see like (laughs) what was going on. I would be talking to somebody and she'd be sleeping and I'd look down and she'd be staring at me. She was just like this quiet little presence that knew everything that was going on somehow. I had never heard her cry outside of that video when she was born. And when we got to that hospital, that was the first time I heard her like screaming in pain. I was able to like stay with her in the room that night and was able to like pick her up and hold her. After that, the decline like just continued. There was one day, like a couple days later that they thought that she was going to pass away. I ended up having to stay at a hotel near the hospital because the hospital had limited rooms. Ronald McDonald house wasn't an option because I lived too close. And they called me and basically said, get back to the hospital. We think she's going to pass away. Had to have the whole family come. She didn't. She made it through that hurdle. She ended up on top of the pulmonary hypertension, getting diagnosed with myeloproliferative disorder, which was something that made me very upset because I already knew that Sometimes with babies with Down syndrome, they are at higher risk for childhood leukemia. So anytime she ever had blood work done, how was it? How were her red blood cells, like her blood counts? And we told everything was fine. Well, once we got to this hospital, it wasn't fine anymore. She had the precursor for leukemia and needed chemotherapy as soon as she got there. So that was very shocking for me. So it's called myeloproliferative disorder, and it's basically like the precursor to leukemia. And so in order to try and get her blood count down, they did the dose of chemotherapy, which I always look back and I'm like, was that the right choice, the wrong choice? Essentially, it probably wouldn't have made any difference. I don't think that it really impacted anything with the pulmonary hypertension, but just thinking about a four pound baby getting chemotherapy, like it still gets me so upset that that even had to be an option. And I ended up actually, she was supposed to get another dose, but it did look like her blood count was getting better. So I did decline it. I didn't want her to have it twice if it was improving. So there was that. She started to do slightly better for like a few days. 
they basically had her on some kind of a sedative when she was on the oscillator. So it kept her like not awake, but she was able to be taken off of that. I was able to hold her one more time while we were there. And then she started to decline again. And something that always stands out to me, which is crazy. So when she started to decline and they were going to have to put her back on the oscillator, they had to give her the medication to basically knock her out. And so they administered this medication to her and she wasn't going to sleep. And she was just staring around the room. And like, I knew why. It was the last time that she was ever going to see anything. And the nurse kept saying, I don't know why she's not going out. She should be asleep. But I knew why she wasn't asleep. Like just deep down in my heart, she had to take everything in because it was the last time that she was ever going to do that. And then after that, things were just like not getting any better. Like every day it was like another lung collapsing, more fluid. It was just awful. And I felt like I had so much pressure on me because, you know, my family was upset seeing what she looked like, all the changes, like, and I'm just trying to fight for her life, wanting to make sure that they've tried every medication that they could try to, to save her. I was never going to feel comfortable until I knew that they tried everything. It was just such a difficult situation because, you know, I had other people and they loved me, you know, they weren't, and they loved her. Nobody was trying to hurt either of us, but I think that maybe for some people it was easier to see what I couldn't. I'm just trying to fight here. I'm just trying to give her the best chance while other people see her dying. I didn't want to see that. But there came a time where like I knew that all of the options had been done and she wasn't a candidate for, there was another procedure that maybe they could have done, but she wasn't a candidate. They didn't even think that she'd make it from the room to the table. So this one night, I remember I went out, I needed to get something to eat and I needed to like remove myself from that room for a short period of time. I came back, her stats were just up and down, up and down, up and down. And I went to her bedside and I told her, cause I knew, like I knew there was nothing else that could be done here. And I said to her, you can go if you need to. I know that she stuck around longer for me. I know that. And I just said, you can go. When you need to go, you can go. Five minutes everything tanked. Um, And they felt so bad. The nurses, the doctors, they knew how invested I was. I mean, I, I mean, I was calling team meetings with, you know, the oncology department, the cardio department, the pulmonologists, like the regular doctors, like everything that I could do, I tried to do. And I think that they just felt so bad when she started tanking that, one of the doctors, I remember him, like, he didn't know what to do. And he was like, we could do another x-ray. We could do another. And and I said, no, like, we're done. I knew in my heart we were done. And this one particular doctor, I always said to her, like, if Madeline reaches a point where she will no longer have quality of life, I need you to tell me. And the one last thing that I did was I went in the hallway with that doctor and I said, are we there? And she said, yes. And that's Aww. when it was done. And they asked me if I wanted to be in private because this particular room, like you could see through the windows and stuff. And so I did. They warned me that even just the walk to the other room, she might pass. But I did want privacy. And then we went to that room. They let me hold her. And that same doctor, she asked me like, or she told me like, tell me when you want me to take the tube out. And she was, I mean, I already knew she was gone. She left that day when she looked around that room and I said, just take it out. And she didn't even 
she never breathed again. Yeah. Like she passed immediately. And it wasn't even her anymore. Like I know that she had already gone. This was just me being able to let go. But I just truly believe that she did hang on longer for me, 110%. And the craziest part of all of this was I still wasn't done. I still needed answers months after this happened. And I did reach back out to the hospital staff because I I did have questions about the pulmonary hypertension and how did this happen and why because she was doing so well. And basically how it was explained to me was that even if Madeline had been a singleton, she would have been a stillborn is basically what I was told because her coming early is the only reason why I got to spend any time with her because as her lungs started to grow, there was like a stopping point for them. They hit their max And then she wasn't able to breathe anymore. So the doctor told me that had I gone further in the pregnancy, that she probably would have passed away and that she would have been stillborn because of the pulmonary hypertension. So essentially what that means to me now is that because the only reason why she came early was because of her brother and because of his placenta. So I've always felt, call me crazy, but that he sacrificed his life so that I could meet her. Because if he wasn't born when he was born, and if his placenta was never left where it was, she wouldn't have been born early. I never would have had that time with her because she would have passed away in utero before I ever had the chance to meet her. But her being born early gave those several weeks of time before her lungs hit their capacity. How much time did you have with her? You said she was two months old when she started to go downhill. Yeah. Um... Two months. Two months, okay. Their due date was May 1st, and she passed away April 24th. So either she would have been stillborn or she would have been born extremely sick and just passed away shortly afterwards. But they basically told me that, like, nothing was going to change the pulmonary hypertension, that she had it. Nobody can say why, but that there probably could have been nothing that they could have done that would have changed anything. And she really like didn't think that I would have met her otherwise. So I've just always kind of held on to that, that it's because of his sacrifice. It gave me a chance to meet her. After Madeline passed, I know you said um, it was really hard for them to take Dylan away. How did you leave the hospital? Like, did they take her away from you? Did you leave on your own? They let me spend like a little bit of time with her, like right after she passed. But in the condition that she was in at that point, it almost hurt me holding her. Basically, her whole entire body was filled with fluid and I could feel it everywhere. And I was just distraught that I had reached a point where she had become like so sick. So it didn't hit me the same way when they took her. And I did get to see her again before she was buried, and I knew I would see her again. I think what it was was not the second that they took her that hurt me the most, but when I when I did leave the hospital, I felt dead, honestly. I just felt my whole experience from start to finish, the infertility treatment, all of it, fighting so hard in the pregnancy to keep her, like it all just came crashing down, and I just left that hospital feeling dead, honestly. Like there was nothing left in me. It was just all gone. And that's just how I felt. Everything I fought for was just gone. And it took a while to get out of that feeling of just being completely numb. So it was different. I feel like with Dylan, like it was just pure and total devastation. And this was just a numbness that I had never, like there was just nothing left in me. Yeah, because you never even had a chance to grieve. You were going to all these appointments, like high risk, or you couldn't attend support groups because you were still pregnant. So yeah, you were just compounded. 
Yeah. I can't even imagine. So once you got home, what is the one kindest thing you remember someone doing for you? I wouldn't say it was one thing. It was just like the people who would send different gifts, things in honor of them. Like even the, I forget exactly the name of the organization, but like one of the organizations that work with families who have children with Down syndrome, like they sent me um, wind chimes with her name engraved. One of my really good friends sent or she gave me two bears. She had given me a bear when Dylan passed away. Like it was a Build-A-Bear. She named Dylan and then she got one for Madeline too. Even right next to me, I have two pillows that a coworker got with like their names on it. Just the outpouring of different gifts that like were in honor of them. That touched me so much. Um, just to have different tangible things that had their names on them or were in memory of them. And that meant a lot. And just the people who made themselves available to talk to me and actually wanted to hear what I had to say. Because as we all know, when you go through things like this, people don't know how to respond to it. And so some don't, you know, you lose friends, relationships with some family members become strained, it it changes everything. But just the people that were there, and they cared and were able to put their own discomfort aside, to be able to just be there for me and talk about them. What was the one thing that you found to be the hardest? Like after you were home, like what was the one part of your grief journey that you felt was the hardest? Um, That's a loaded question. I think... It totally is. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. I think it was just this terrible feeling of complete defeat. Just going through the process of infertility treatment and fighting so hard and giving up so much and, you know, the other eggs that were donated, like everything compounded. And this was the result. How could that be? I couldn't make that make sense. And I still can't make it make sense. I just feel like I jumped through every hoop. And I honestly felt like I sold my soul to try and have these babies because essentially going through the process of donating eggs to someone else so they could have a family in return. This sounds really crazy, but I always like I think of when Ariel gave her voice to Ursula in exchange, you know, to be a human. Like, that's what I felt like. And then the worst happened. And and I just, I felt completely and totally broken. Just, I gave up everything for this chance to have these babies. And like, how could this happen to them? And why, you know, and then I beat myself up for the fact that I did transfer both embryos. And, you know, what if I hadn't, then maybe Dylan would have had a chance. But then it had just been Madeline, then she still probably would have passed away because of the pulmonary hypertension. Like, I just wanted to find a reason that I couldn't find. And I just think that the fertility piece of it all just made it so much harder because I knew what I would need to do to be able to have another child. And I, I didn't even have any idea what that would look like. And I briefly entertained trying to jump into another transfer, but essentially I did not end up going through that process at that time. So it's like it's complicated grief. Your story is very powerful because, you know, Nicole and I have met so many people, but it's just like one thing is pretty shitty. And then the next thing is pretty shitty. The next thing is really pretty shitty. You know what I mean? It just compounds. It's a very complicated grief. Amen for you being here and smiling. I'm telling you. 
Yes, that's right. And again, it kind of goes back to the theme of nobody gets to choose the cards that get thrown at you in life. And, you know, we all go through some pretty horrible things. And I even think about, you know, mothers who have lost children in other ways, you know, drunk driving, you know, drugs. And what I can say is for any of these people who have lived these horrible life experiences, you have two choices. You know, you sit in it, you let it kill you, you let it destroy you, or you do something. And not saying you can't sit in the grief, sit in it for as long as you need to. But I just think that there's something to be said for eventually getting back up and doing something with it. And that was really my only option. Like, you know, when people say, oh, you're so strong, I do kind of brush that off because as many of us have said, we don't, we didn't have a choice and I didn't have a choice. This is what I needed to do. And this was what I did to try to protect my babies and give them a chance. And what I'm trying to do now is to be there for other people. And my desire to be a mother was so strong. And I'm just so happy that I was able to still mother them and have been in, you know, my different ways, but also for being able to hold on to the hope that one day I would meet their sibling. And there were many times over the past several years that hope, you know, started to fade that I didn't think that that was ever going to happen. But more than anything, like I, I just want women to know that these terrible things can happen, but it doesn't mean that you will never have the chance to meet that baby, to be a mother, to have a family. Um, that's just been the driving force for me that like, no matter what I've gone through, I wasn't going to let this take that away from me. You know, they are not here anymore. And I did everything I could to keep them here, to get them here. And I fought for them as best as I possibly could. But I just didn't want to lose that chance of still being able to be a parent. And thank God it took a long time. It took longer than I would have liked for it to take. But five years later, and he's here. And I do believe that's because of his siblings, 110%. But I also think that a big piece of that was me too and holding on, like I said, through trying to help other people and not wanting them to give up on being a mother, no matter what, you know, infertility condition they might have been going through or whatever was happening. It also helped me to not yeah. give up either. Um, you said about how people say you're so strong. And today I was listening to a podcast about infant loss. And the mom said, you know, people say that I'm so strong, but I like to say that I'm resilient. And I think that's a really good way to turn that around because it's so true. You said you're given this hand, you really don't have a choice. If you want to live, you're just going to have to live through it as best as you can. But to be resilient and to come back and come mm -hmm. back strong and still have that purpose. I think, yes, you're you are resilient. You're still strong, but you're a very resilient person. I do feel grateful for the time that I did get to spend with her. I know a lot of people don't get that. And the time that I had with her, I would have done anything to have had that time with Dylan. Like that is to this day, the thing that hurts me the most is that I don't know what he would look like. I don't, you know, know certain things about his personality, like, but I was so fortunate with her as much as I wasn't fortunate. I was what I wanted was to save my baby, to get to meet one of them. And I did. Against all the odds that were stacked against the both of us, I still met her. And I do hold that so close to me and I'll never take that for granted. Doesn't mean that it's not painful, but there was so much beauty in those moments with her and being able to look at him now when he'll make a certain face um, and he looks like his sister. It just makes me feel so good that a piece of her lives on and a piece of Dylan lives on as well. And even though I don't know exactly what he would have looked like, I'm certain 
that there are pieces Mm -hmm. of Dylan and Theo. Absolutely. What is one of the things that helped you or any of the things that helped you with your grief? How did you make it through? Did you do counseling? Like what were some of your tools? So I did do counseling for like the first year, which was helpful to process through things. I think something that I really needed after the losses was to be able to kind of reconnect with myself also was to figure out who Aaron was. I had spent all that time prior to losing them just being so invested in, you know, going through treatment that I lost me. It just kind of took over and became everything. And then boom, the babies aren't here anymore. And I needed to really sit with myself for a while. And I wrote all throughout this process. I was very open about what was going on. And I would update people like on the pregnancy, like how Madeline was doing. And I continued writing. And I think that that for me is just kind of how... I'm best able to express myself, um, writing out my feelings. And that's when, you know, I had reached out to Des about writing for Three Little Birds and I did that. And it wasn't until actually recently that I became more involved with Three Little Birds because initially I didn't know where I fit in because my story was so complicated. And because at first I was kind of urged not to, you know, participate in certain things. I never knew, I guess, when it was okay to. And for the past, I guess, two years, I became a little bit more involved. And I think even though it's been several years since they passed away, sharing their story, being with other lost parents, speaking their names, doing art projects for them, I think that has helped in the healing too. Because as we know, there's no time limit. I think that in that first year or two, I was, you know, laser focused on finding me, trying to process, going to therapy. But there were still things that I needed. And I think that that's part of what I found more recently in being around other people. Makes sense, girl. If that makes sense. (laughs) How are you continuing to honor the legacy of your children? You told me recently about a time when you had a fundraiser because um, another nonprofit had helped you after the loss of Madeline. So maybe just tell me a little bit about that also. There was a nonprofit called Fred's Footsteps that I was connected with when Madeline was at in the hospital. And essentially, they help families with critically ill children. They can help to support the families by helping with expensive medical equipment that a family might need for their child to be able to come home like a ramp or they don't have reliable transportation but need to get back and forth to the hospital. Sometimes they can help with a vehicle. For me personally, um, I was not in the best financial situation, having been out of work for so long and being in and out of the hospital and all the medical bills. So they were able to help with several months of mortgage payment, car payments, like things to help to, yeah, to keep me afloat, you know, after all of this had happened. And they were just exceptionally kind to me because typically they don't help people whose child has already passed. It's typically when the child is like hospitalized and the family's going back and forth. But one of the social workers had shared my story and what was going on. And even after she passed away, they were able to help me for several months. And I knew that I wanted to give back to them. If there was anything that I could do in her memory, it would be to be able to help another family. So actually the first year after they had passed away, I threw everything into that benefit. I mean, I reached out to every business organization within a 60 mile radius regarding, you know, donations for raffle baskets. The outpouring was incredible. Um, it, was, it exceeded any expectations that I had. And a good friend of mine and her husband 
helped me to find a place that was very generous and letting us host it there. And they, you know, provided the food. Like people really rallied around to help me with this. And I ended up raising about $16,000 to donate back to Fred's footsteps to be able to help another family in her memory. Yeah, I love that story. I loved hearing about it. Yeah. And it was for her first birthday. So the weekend of her first birthday is when we had the benefit. And that helped so much, you know, being able to do that. But then when it was done, you know, the smoke kind of cleared a little bit. Then there were things that I needed to, you know, really face and deal with. But I think it was a wonderful thing for me to be able to invest my energy into to get through, you know, the first year and then process everything that had happened. Do you have any advice for a mom or a family that are newly in their grief, just gone through this? Like what advice do you have for them? I mean, I would say don't set any expectations on yourself of how long you should be grieving for or what is appropriate and what isn't, you know, whatever you feel is right for you to honor your baby or babies, honor them in that way grieve for as long as you need to. I mean, you you always grieve. There is no time limit, but for as long as you need to take that time for yourself to process, you know, whatever you need to do for you, do it and don't feel bad about it. And don't let other people make you feel bad about it either, whether it's a month later or whether it's years later. When you lose a child, people don't understand that that is not something that leaves you. And however you choose to honor them moving forward in your life, do that and and don't let anybody tell you that it's wrong. And just lean into the people that you know care for you and the people that want to know about your children and speak their names and understand that there might be people that change in the face of grief. But again, just lean into those that are there for you and you know support you through this and just don't ever feel bad about taking time for yourself. So in closing, I want to ask you, um, one of the blogs that you wrote for a local loss group, like you said, Three Little Birds, uh, in May of 2020, you titled it, Where is My Happy Ending? So I want to know, do you remember writing that piece? And as you look at where you are today versus back then, like, do you have any thoughts that you could share? I always say recently when I look at Theo that like I wish somebody could have showed me like somebody could have showed me his picture. Somebody could have told me on the day that I walked out of that hospital without both of them where I would be several years later because I feel like it would have like helped me so much. Um, At the time of writing that, I was in a place of despair because a lot of things in my life changed, you know, after losing the twins. I went through a divorce. I had to rediscover myself. I got remarried. We had to then navigate infertility treatment again and what that was going to look like and who would carry and all of these things. Um, And there were points in that journey that I just, I didn't know what was going to happen or would there ever be a healthy child and just constantly wondering, you know, what the future would look like. And now I am just so incredibly grateful. This, This little boy is the best thing that's ever happened to me outside of his siblings. And I hope that he is just a symbol to other people to never, ever give up because it can happen. And if it could happen for me, like it can happen for another person. It can. It took five years, but it can happen. Erin, thank you so much for being here and sharing the stories of Madeline and Dylan with us. If you want to send some love to Erin and her beautiful family, email us at NicoleTheBlindsided.com or DesireeTheBlindsided.com. Thank you for listening. We will see you next episode. 
Thank you so much for tuning into the latest episode of the Blindsided Podcast. We truly appreciate your support and time you spent with us. If you have a personal story you'd like to share on the show, don't hesitate to reach out to us. You can send us an email at NicoleAtTheBlindsided.com or Desiree at TheBlindsided.com. For more episodes, make sure to follow on your favorite podcast app. Just search The Blindsided Podcast and hit that follow button. You can also connect with us on social media too. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at The Blindsided Podcast. We love engaging with our listeners and hearing your thoughts on each episode. And before you go, consider leaving a rating and review for our show. Your feedback helps us reach more listeners who might find value in the stories and discussions we share. Once again, thank you for listening and being a part of the Blindsided community.